See, I just thought if you knew how to put on a jock strap, you were a jock. You were a jock? Yeah. Well, I guess we'd have to go back and identify our terms to have the debate, but being jo- being jocular, I guess anyone can be. Clay was definitely but, jocular. But the way we use being a jock is, yeah, definitely something on a different level. Yeah, I always wanted to be a jock, but I never thought that I had to give up my smarts to do it. I always wanted to be athletic. But I just, I always had the coordination of a turnip and I knew that it was just never going to happen. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 127. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And we are joined today by, what, three-timer, four-timer? Three-timer. Yeah, three-timer. Honored to be here for the third time. Special guest co-host, Paul, the Paul AC. (laughs) Hey, guys. What's going on? Oh, we're great. Paul is a friend of the show. He's a great guy. He lives out there in the Rocky Mountains somewhere around Colorado. He's an author. He's a movie reviewer. Uh, We have previewed his books in the past, such as God on the Streets of Gotham and uh, Burning Bush 2.0, I believe are the titles. Mm -hmm. How am I doing? You're doing awesome. Just talk about my books for the rest of the podcast. (laughs) What I know about Paul, because sometimes we just nerd out through email threads, is that he's also a voracious fan of history. So we thought it would be fun to have him on today as we look at the anniversary of the end of World War II and we talk about what that did to shape America and maybe specifically a little bit of our religious traditions. Um, But Jr. Speaking of history, there's been some news afoot, and you know it makes my Hamilton heart so happy. <laughs> well, let's let's review what happened, Clay. There was uh, there's big to do a while ago about having uh, American female history makers on our money, and so initially they, they were planning to replace Alexander Hamilton on the ten dollar bill. Mm-hmm. Now. Clay was livid Hmm. Uh, as a a rabid Hamilton fan. uh, He said, this is the worst thing that's happened in U.S. history since Aaron Burr. I think was the (laughs) exact quote. A most odious scheme. Hamilton's already been taken out once in history. I don't need to relive it. What happened, though, is that while Clay sat impotently by complaining to his Facebook crowd, another hero rose up and made Hamilton famous like he deserved. And that is, of course, the amazing author, star, and composer of the Hamilton musical. Yeah, and, Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's right. A musical that went from off-Broadway to Broadway to, like, world-dominating force that has now won a Pulitzer. I mean, when you get invited to the White House to perform your stage play, you've done something, and I wonder if it wasn't too long after that, in fact, it wasn't too many weeks after that performance, that the Treasury Department made a an announcement, and everybody thought they were going to announce who was going to, in fact, replace Hamilton on the 10. Oh, plot twist. Instead, we took off, like, the worst president in U.S. history, Andrew Jackson, <laughs> from the 20, <laughs> and are replacing him with Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, the 
uh, Moses. Uh, there are a lot of people that were called the kind of the Moses of the South, but the idea of being a liberator. And Harriet Tubman, man, she was a tough woman who ran uh, the Underground Railroad, essentially, which helped uh, s- slaves escape the South. She went back in multiple times at her own peril. Imagine getting out one time and then imagine going back in time and time again. And not just going back, but going back as clearly a a fugitive by the Southern system. Uh, Harriet Tubman uh, ran this network. So, yeah. And um, she was like five foot nothing. I mean, (laughs) she was she was a tiny lady, but really, really tough. Man, I I was so excited when I heard the news because Jr. I totally agree with you. Jackson, not a very good president, not very good. He's right down there with Harding, I think. Oh yeah. man! And here's the real irony: if you want to go a little bit deeper on it, um, Jackson came to hate the National Bank. His enemies were behind its um, rechartering, and you know Hamilton set up the system that basically became the financial system of America. Uh, it certainly gave a young America stability and credibility to survive in its early days through business and finance. So Jackson killed the National Bank, and that was long after Hamilton was dead. So it's another added irony that the Treasury Department has chosen to take out Jackson instead of Hamilton. Now, Paul, uh, I got to ask, you were at, you were at one point trying to read a chronological history of America through biographies of our presidents. And I think last I checked in, you were somewhere on Madison. Has the journey gone any farther? You know what? Actually, all the good biographies, they sort of peter out shortly after Jackson. So I read my Jackson biography, still hated him. He was still a terrible president. Wait, was it um, a sympathetic biography? It was fairly sympathetic, you know, and there were some nice things about him. He was he was a good he tried to do the right thing, but he was just, you know, by today's standard, he was just kind of a jerk. He just yeah. was, you know, and, and, and he just didn't do a lot of stuff that I particularly liked. He felt, he felt, and I don't want to get too political here, but he felt a little like sort of the Donald Trump of, of the day, you know, because he was, he was a very much of a populist. He was very much of a rebel for the, mm-hmm. for the particular system. I've always been more of a Hamiltonian establishment type of a so um, I got through Polk, read a biography on Polk, and uh, yeah, I'm sort of I'm sort of in a holding pattern right now. To tell you and, the truth. and as Jr. can tell us, the next president that would have come after Polk that you would read about is, of course, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Jr. can look that one up later. But I, I will say this: um, I, I remember listening to a sympathetic biographer talk about Andrew Jackson. And he kind of wrapped up his remarks and he said, you know, he probably had a chemical imbalance of some kind. And uh, had he been alive today, he probably would have been diagnosed with some kind of um, genocide disease. Yeah, I mentioned <laughs> that too. But they said he would have been prescribed some medication, but he wouldn't have taken it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. That's about right. Well, yeah, so I thought that I thought the choice was fantastic. Harriet Tubman. You couldn't ask for a better person to be on the twenty. I don't think you know it, who else would you choose. I mean, if you if you had to choose someone else for the twenty dollar bill, can you think of anybody else you would who you would select? She was my pick. Yeah, I mean, if you're sp- speaking specifically about women, no, uh, I would say maybe Dr. King, uh, yeah. but he's going to be on the back of the five along with Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, an opera singer, Mary uh, Marian Anderson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but then Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and a few other people are going to be on the back of the 10 with Hamilton staying on the front. And then Jackson's actually being relocated to the back of the 20. Um, which, again, you have to appreciate the irony that he's probably ticked that he was forcibly relocated by the government to somewhere he didn't want to be. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So is, is this like a – this may be the geekiest podcast you guys have ever done. I mean, when we're starting talking about – uh, about the national bank. I mean, that's, just like, <laughs> don't you think? I think so. Well, and, and I really, I really, before we get to the 20th century, I want to continue our March through U S history. So of course, you know, the next big event we come to is civil war. And so my question is, <laughs> do you think that that is going to be a better movie than Batman v Superman? That was the best segue. <laughs> ever. That was Awesome. Hmm. <laughs> Will the new Marvel Civil War movie be better than Batman v Superman? Well, how I, could it not be? Yeah. You know, I mean, essentially is what it comes down to. I think, I think, I didn't hate Batman v Superman as much as some people did, but I didn't like it very much. You know, it was, it was just a dark, depressing slog. And, you know, having written a book on Batman, I'm kind of a Batman guy. Preach. Batman we saw in this was just not like the guy who I wrote about. He was he was he was dark. He was practically using guns. He was killing people. That's that's just not the Dark Knight that I know. And so um, that was sort of a little bit of a frustrating thing when I was watching the movie. Um, Marvel, from what I can see, has set up a fantastic track record of their movies. They they tend to be. Um, really entertaining. They can be funny. Um, and, and I think the Captain America ones have actually been some of my favorites. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I don't think it's any secret that um, Captain America is clearly my, my favorite contemporary cinematic superhero. And because Superman has just been not Superman. I mean, he Captain, Captain America now with Chris Evans is more like, you know, what I wanted from Superman. So um, I think Cap's my favorite. I'm excited about Civil War. Um, I'm also excited, Jr., to see you finally not pick uh, Iron Man as your as your guy. And 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 this will be the first time I think with the Robert Downey Iron Man that you'll be rooting against him. Probably true. true. Wow. I'm, I, based on what they're setting up, from what we can tell from the trailers, I'm 100% team Cap. Now, right is now. it spoilers if it's based on comics? I mean, these are the well, but it's not that. like it's not the what what what's happening in the way they're getting into this issue in the the film is like I would say different enough from the comics that they're going to be okay. able to be discussed as two different things. Even yeah, because I, I think they're they're sort of giving away some of it on the trailers, right? Yeah, I mean, from what yeah. I recall. Now. Uh, my our my friend and co-pastor Jonathan Sprang listens to a couple of uh, big movie podcasts, and uh, one of them, all of the panel had already seen the film, and all of them were Team Iron Man. No mm. way! Yeah, after they saw the movie, hmm. so wow. I'm very interested to see how that all comes about. Then again, there are some movie podcasts that I stopped listening to because I can't believe how I disagree with the entire panel. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it's going to be hard for me to pick a side that says more government regulation. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm with you. I mean, because it's sort of that tension, right? I mean, they're setting this up as sort of this, this freedom versus security. How, how, how much do we value our security over taking the risks of being a little more free? 
Um, it's a really interesting debate, but I think I land on Captain America's side too. It'll be interesting. We'll have to revisit this conversation after we all see the film next week and yeah. see if we all now, what are you clay? I'm team cap. All okay. The way. Okay. So it'll be interesting. Oh, I'll to have see. my cap shirt on. I'll be ready to go. You'll bring you your chisel jawline. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that amazes me is how many of, you know, it's sort of like Avengers light, right? I mean, yeah. they have everybody coming in for this thing. Yep. Did I see that, that Spider-Man is going to be part of the mix as well? That's correct. Well, that would Ooh. that would be true to the comics as well, right? Spidey was the first big one that kind of joined up with. Yeah. Her. So in the con, they're not going to do this in the movie. Obviously, this is one thing that's definitely not going to happen. But uh, Spider-Man in the comic was already an Avenger, and he was living in Avengers Tower. So it was kind of like for the first time in Peter Parker's life, he had a steady paycheck and he didn't have to worry mm -hmm. about his apartment. And Aunt May was taken care of, and he was like actually good. And it was because he was under Tony Stark's wing. Mm -hmm. And so when Tony comes out pro registration he convinces Peter Parker to unmask himself yeah. and reveal his identity. And he does so like, that was like the oh, big, wow. like that was like the big thing. Yeah. See, I didn't read that. That's yeah. really interesting. And like issue two, boom, Peter Parker's yeah, was like identity is 10 public. years. I remember reading that and being really surprised. Yeah. And so, uh, that was like, that's obviously not going to happen in mm. this one. Um, so we'll see how they use Spider-Man, because he's a teenager, not an adult, because he's just being introduced, he's not been a longstanding part of the universe. Uh, they're obviously not going to unmask him before he even gets his own rebooted three third time yeah. movie. You know? <laughs> so I cannot believe that. That's a little bit too much, even for me, the superhero fan that I am. If we get a if we finally get a good Spider-Man movie, I'm for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it stars Tom Hanks, actually. Perfect. Oh, I'm in now. Can he be? Can he be Uncle Ben, and I can watch him die in the first scene of the movie? <laughs> oh, that was the low hanging fruit, man. I was already reaching over that one. Leave it to so, JR. Let me ask you why? Why typically, except for you know the Dark Knight series, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight series, why does Marvel seem to know how to make superhero movies, and DC just struggles? Why is that? I personally think it's because. DC characters have always been more archetypal mm. and Marvel characters have always been more like every man sort yeah. of, uh, e even when it's someone like Tony Stark's a billionaire, Steve Rogers has super soldier serum, Peter Parker has spider powers. Even still, they make them like, these are everyday people who have everyday problems. You know, Peter Parker says to get his homework in on time and do it as Aunt May says, you know, it's like, and, and he can like lift a bus. Uh, so, you know, the fantastic four, whenever they're at their best, it's cause they're a fan, they're a dysfunctional family. Oh yeah. And by the way, they also have superpowers. Yeah. And, and whereas like in DC, it's like S Superman is the embodiment of hope. Batman is the embodiment of like conquering your fear. You know, Wonder Woman is the embodiment of feminism. Like it's like, they're like these archetypal things. And I, it's just, it's just harder to tell a really good story about archetypes. It either, it either is going to be like off the chain, amazing, or it's going to be like, no, you totally missed the point. Whereas like, you know, the first Captain America movie, I don't think anyone's saying it deserved best picture. You know, the, the first Iron Man movie, like it was good, but it wasn't great. Like, especially now that we have so many of them, it was right. kind of like the first one, but most of the Marvel movies aren't like a plus 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 they're perfect movies. There's no problem. They're mostly like, B to A minus, you know. Right, right. But they're entertaining. You exactly. Walk in, like they do. And you sit down and they do what they're supposed to do, you know. Yeah. My wife, the Dark Knight, right? Like the Dark right. Knight was this 
like sprawling mm. crime drama that ended up not really being a superhero movie and it like deconstructed national security like and you're like whoa <laughs> <laughs> you know what else i just thought of dc essentially came from a number of different writers even across a couple different eras um the big ones came out of the late 30s early 40s but whereas you've got Siegel and Schuster, and then you've got uh, Kane, Bob Kane, and you've yeah. got the the professor. I can't think of his name right now. Um, you know, Marvel basically comes from Stanley and Kirby, and it starts from this like genesis of Marvel being created at a time, and and so there's there's a way there's a way different kind of um, pattern. There's a cohesion there, yeah. yeah. There's a cohesion there that you just don't find with the with the DC mm-hmm. heroes. Yeah, I can buy that. Well, the other problem uh, when Mark Wade was on Storyman, however many years ago that was now, you know, he said this was his like insider take on having worked at DC. He said they did the Dark Knight and everything was dark and brooding and it made a billion dollars. And then they tried Green Lantern and they tried bright, happy, funny and it crashed and they totally misunderstood the reasons that that movie bombed. It wasn't because it wasn't dark. It was because it was a bad movie that Mm -hmm. missed the point of Green Lantern. And then what, so their answer was, Oh, well let's just make everything dark like Batman. Mm -hmm. And so then we got man of steel, which was like horrible. Um, (laughs) And now we have Batman versus Superman, which is doubled down on all the bad things about man of steel. Um, You know? And so it's like, yeah, like they, Jared, those buildings were empty. It was after five o'clock. That's right. The next time I'm in downtown downtown Dallas after five, I'm going to be like, so glad I learned from Batman. (laughs) None of this traffic is real. Streets, Streets are empty. Yeah. That was pretty funny. Well, uh, it will be fun to revisit Civil War. I'm sure we'll be talking about it. And Paul, I'm sure you'll be back. um, We've got to come back and review our predictions. Yeah, as well as later in the show, we'll be uh, letting everybody know where Paul can be found. But today, we focus on true history. And specifically, this episode will go up here at the end of April. And this is the just over the 70th. Now we're into 71st anniversary of the end of World War II. So... Uh, now, when you say that, you mean specifically VE Day, right? Well, I got a couple of different things that kind of span it. So on April 29th, 1945, the Dachau camp was liberated. Um, and by May 8th, the the official surrender by the German um, powers was complete. In between there, Hitler killed himself. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about the, the timeline of the history, just a couple of the, the major points. Um, and then move into a discussion of how that changed us and some specific observations I've heard different folks like JR and Matt at times talk about specifically how it affected maybe gender in America. But even more than that, I think there's some common things like you already alluded to Trump in a different way. Um, the way that our political world is today, how does that connect even to the Cold War, to communism or to these fears that we feel in an insecure time? So my first question is for JR. Uh, you just got back from Germany, and Dachau, um, I guess I should point out what it is. It was the um, first Dachau, concentration yeah, camp it was the original by the Nazis, uh, and it was liberated, like I said, at the end of April. And some, uh, let's see, 160,000 prisoners at least passed through the main camp. Um, and then many of them, of course, were executed, and many were sent to death camps elsewhere. So did you have any... Uh, experience in your trips to germany to visit dachau yeah we actually the i think the second day we were there we made this that, trip you did this this trip. i couldn't remember if you were going to uh, that yeah it's crash. it's it's uh 
30 minutes outside of Munich. It's okay. so if you ever go to Munich, you can easily go see Dachau. So, so what did you learn and what was that like? Was that your first trip there? No, I had been there the first time I went to Germany in 1999 and it had been through Dachau and they've, they've maintained it and done some, uh, some good work on it since then. So, um, the biggest thing that I saw, the biggest thing that I learned this time was, again, I guess you probably, if you're anything like me, you probably had in your head this idea that like all of the concentration camps were built specifically to kill uh, Jewish people and gay people and, you know, the mm -hmm. Roma people and all of that. But that's not true for Dachau. Like Dachau was built as a concentration camp. It so was like built to camp. concentrate political prisoners, mm -hmm. like keep them all in one place and control them. And very early on, the very first prisoners who were there uh, started having accidents and they would start, they died, died in strange ways. And from the beginning, there was this pattern of dehumanization uh, that was happening from the guards from day one. But it was, it was, it was crazy because you would watch as the years progressed of the camp and as more and more different kinds of people were being brought there, how everything just kept escalating. And it was, it's, it's, it's a perfect example of how small acts of aggression that go unchecked can create these patterns of dehumanization. And when you ask, how could this ever have happened? The answer at the doc house shows you it's like, mm -hmm. well, because no one said anything mm -hmm. the very first time anything happened, they were like, well, that's not that big a deal. Right. And they just kind of swept things under the rug and they looked the other way because it was easier not to say something. And so then over a decade later, there are hundreds of people a day being burned. Uh, their corpses are being burned because they've been killed. And now you can't say anything because you never said anything. Mm -hmm. And now, now it's a machine and you can't stop it. It's too big. And, and, and so that's kind of what I took away. I mean, I, I'll go ahead and be political. Like when we see Trump saying terrible, racist, ignorant things and people say, well, I don't think he really means that stuff. What I really like is his economic policies mm -hmm. or something like that. It's like, but you can't ignore that other stuff. Yeah. Like you can't ignore it because that's how this stuff happens. You can't ignore that at his rallies, people of color are getting beat up. You can't ignore that. You can't say, well, that's accidental or that's incidental. No, like he, his rhetoric is creating space for those things to happen. And if it's not stopped now, then the spaces get bigger and the permission gets uh, more permissive, I guess. I don't know how you say that. Well, but like and, and also in Germany, it started with a longstanding narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Vilifying a certain mm -hmm. people. And you wrote some great reflections, I think. I didn't realize that was Dachau. Yeah, um, that was Dachau. Uh, that was not a leading question. So we need to get a link to that. If you're not friends with JR on Facebook, come one, come all, unless you're going to be you know, really ignorant. Uh, we can put that up somewhere. Uh, yeah, we can find a link to it. But I mean, guess that's what I took away yeah. from Dachau, right? was like, you ask, how could these things happen? Mm -hmm. And it really is that old, uh, it was a poem someone wrote that we probably all had to read in school a hundred times. So it's like, first they came for the Jews mm -hmm. and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And then they yeah. came for these people and I didn't speak up because I wasn't priest, a I believe, said. Yeah. That. And then he said, and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak up. Yeah. Like that is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Paul, yeah. what is your, um, you know, you are a fan of history. You're a student of history. So what, what is your, um, background experience have you traveled to europe have you read up on world war ii do you have relatives who fought like what what is your connection to this era yeah all all three actually you know i i think um world war ii is is a fascinating period in history for me and you know i'm, I'm no history professor like another person in this podcast is but <laughs> but um it, it really is 
a, a fascinating thing for, for me to just read up on. I've always been really interested in it. My, my grandfather was a sailor in World War II. Um, and, and just, just sort of the atmosphere around the war has always been incredibly intriguing to me. And I think, I think one of the lessons that, that you get from this war is, is exactly what JR is talking about. You know, I think, I think it's amazingly easy and really frightening, terrifyingly easy to sometimes diminish the humanity of someone else who's different than you. You know, I, I think that there's, there's a horrible element in, in, can I say all of us in a way where if we're given a, the, yeah. the right set of circumstances, we all like to feel better about ourselves. And sometimes that means for us to make other people feel worse about themselves. And so you have sort of this cascade of, of just bad stuff. You know, if you're allowed to, to treat people as something less than you are, it's so easy to let that continue. You know, I think that, I think that, we might feel bad about it at first, but if no one stops you, if there's no accountability, it's so easy to just go down this really dark, terrible road. Um, I've never been to Dachau. I've never been to Germany. So I haven't seen um, any of the concentration camps, but, but I did go just a couple of years ago to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Incredibly powerful. Anybody who is in Washington D.C. that is a that is a must see, must stop. It you walk through and you see the exhibits, and I have never been in a museum that is more silent. People just yeah. look at the, the exhibits there, and, and they're just absorbing it. It's just, it's just, it's a really powerful experience. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, you said you had a family member who fought in the war. Yeah, my grandfather fought in the war. He um, he was a sailor actually for a merchant ship. You know, it's it's one of these things where I think that um, when you think about wars, you always think about people on the front lines. You know, pulling the triggers. There's so much of a support structure uh, that that goes around these these massive military endeavors. And, and my grandfather was was part of of that support structure. Um, he wasn't involved on a battleship or anything like that. I did have mm-hmm. some some great uncles who who flew in World War II, who fought bombers and fighters in World War II. Um, but but even so, he uh, his ship was torpedoed. He uh, it was he the interesting thing about my grandfather. He he died several years ago, but he was always really reluctant to talk about his experiences during World War II. Um, and you can sort of understand why. I think, uh, I think that there are things, especially as a young grandchild, there are things that you just don't necessarily want to talk about it with, mm-hmm. with your grandkids with. Um, there are some things that maybe you don't necessarily want to remember that much. He was proud of his service. He felt like he did the right thing, but, but it wasn't something that he went into a great deal of detail about. You know, I remember reading Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, and we hear that phrase, and I think people assume, like, oh, come on, you know, we're just glorifying this. They weren't, they weren't all just perfect and noble and everything. And we're going to talk about motivations a little bit later. But if you actually read Brokaw's book, which really made The Greatest Generation tagline stick, um, there, there's people chronicled in that book who come home and they can't maintain their marriages, and then they end up killing themselves. So. There, there's a people. There's a great struggle, right? There's survivor guilt. There's, mm-hmm. um, there's my buddy survived, but I had to pull a trigger on a 16 year old kid because Hitler was throwing anybody between 15 and 80 into uniforms at the end. 
so, you know, we talk about this generation and yeah, a lot of them didn't want to talk about it, but to say the greatest generation, uh, you know, that, that term implies a lot more. Probably many of us had a, a relative of some kind who was connected to the war, but I'm also glad that you bring up the support forces because there were so many people in so many different capacities. Uh, and later on, we're going to talk, you know, even about what that meant on the home front um, in, in the war. But JR, I'm curious, do you know how Hitler actually died? All I know is that he committed suicide. Okay. Paul, do you do you have all the deets or have you heard some Oh things? man. So I he did commit suicide, right? Or or at least you will hear some people say that he didn't and he's still running around somewhere in Argentina at the age of 140 right, right. or But he did commit suicide, I believe. Was it poison? And I know that his mm-hmm. his uh, okay. his he just married his longtime lover at the moment, and, and she died as well too. And then mm-hmm. their their bodies were burned, right? Okay, so you you've got the pieces that a lot of people have. This is what probably one of the most asked questions I would get as a teacher. And uh, he was living in his bunker there up at the mm-hmm. Eagle's Nest. His fiance girlfriend, who we married, the basically within the hours before suicide was Ava Braun and they had a golden shepherd named Blondie and there they were with the end coming in and Hitler was getting increasingly mentally unstable. He began calling for the assassination of some of his top leaders convinced that they were all rising up against him. Um, Eventually the orders were just ignored. He does the marriage ceremony. They take the cyanide first. It's given to the dog, the poor dog that didn't do anything, but you know, gets taken out. And then Ava Braun committed suicide uh, by poison with the cyanide and uh, there's a dispute over whether or not Hitler took the cyanide shot himself chomped down on the cyanide as he shot himself. Um, But they do believe from the fragments of jaw and things that they found that it was probably a a gunshot wound to the, to the mouth. So Hitler, in any case, his body was uh, recovered and within a week Germany had surrendered. So that's the timeline between the end of April to that time in May 8th when uh, German surrendered. So what a lot of people don't realize anymore, though, is that wasn't the end of World War II. So it, it gets a little confusing if you weren't alive at the time, but VE Day was Victory in Europe Day. And then later on, when Japan was defeated at the end of the summer in August, that's VJ Day, which was Victory over Japan. So America was fighting this war on two fronts. And that's that's kind of what we're talking about as an anniversary today is VE Day. So what the reason we wanted to to reflect on this today is not just to celebrate like the end of a great evil in Europe and, and, and all of the, you know, the liberation of the concentration camps and all of that, but specifically how, how is American religion different in the wake of world war two, which, you know, in many ways was kind of a bookend to, to what began in world war one. You know, um, if you think if you remember World War One happened and then we had a little bit of the roaring 20s, but then we had a, a global depression that fed basically right into World War Two. Uh, and so we had basically a half a century of just devastation across the world. And it was very difficult for American Christianity. Uh, my particular denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, was specifically affected by all of that in ways that we're still trying to recover from. Mm. But it's it's important, we, we forget, or maybe we never knew, that at the end of the 1800s, at the end of the 19th century, everyone in the West 
was predicting that the 20th century would be the golden age of humanity. And re- specifically, a lot, a lot of evangelical religions, which, you know, evangelicalism was just kind of becoming a thing. Uh, even even the like the, the emerging fundamentalist denominations, most of them looked at the 20th century as the millennial reign of Christ. And they thought they 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 were what we would call postmillennial kind of interpreters who said that that Christ's millennial reign would or that the that the end of the second coming and all of that would come after the millennial reign. And a lot of a lot of people were looking at the 20th century as that golden age of humanity. And it was it was progressivism. It was the, it was the all of the scientific revolution right. and all of these advancements that had that we had been making in the 1800s, the eradication of these diseases, the uh, advancement. Coming. Yeah, it was all it was like right there. Science was going to save us. Exactly. And, but yeah. but again, there were a lot of Christians who were saying it was like this was God. This was the way God right. was doing this. Right. They weren't right. they weren't saying faith or science. They were saying faith and science, if you can even imagine that. Right. <laughs> And then instead, we had like the bloodiest half decade or half century that we've ever had in history. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you play out then Cold War into the the all the stuff that we got into in Asia with the Korea and Vietnam and all of that kind of stuff, like it was bad. <laughs> like it was really bad. And American religion, in a lot of ways, was was shaken to our core because instead of the promise of this utopia and the reign of God, it was, it was like almost like as opposite that as you could possibly get. Instead, we were faced with literally someone almost actually completed a genocide. Right. 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 Like terrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And and I'm not sure if my perspective, my perspective may be a little bit different than, than yours. When I think about world war two specifically, in, in a way, I think that the war really gave birth to um, the evangelical climate that we have today, you know, and I think that I think that um, you look at World War Two. And, and World War One was a very complicated beast of a war. You know, it was all these different people. There weren't, you definitely had allies and enemies, but you didn't have this sense of good versus evil necessarily. And it was a very complex war. It was horrible, horrible. You had, you know, gas warfare and it was just, it was just terrible. And I think a lot of people said, you know, it was the war to end all wars. We're never doing that again. And, and it sort of opened up a very a time of, of a lot of soul searching. Um, when World War II sort of opened, all of a sudden, and, and, and as it went on, I think all of a sudden, um, we as Americans certainly began to see it as this truly good versus evil conflict. You know, um, the more we learned about Nazi Germany, the, the more we saw uh, what was going on in Japan, it, it felt like... Um, there was a righteous cause that we were fighting. This was an important thing for us to do. We became throughout this, this war almost, I think we came to see ourselves almost as paladins, you know, fighting this mm-hmm. great, terrible, terrible evil. And I think that, that that sort of created maybe internally and in a lot of us subconsciously, just sort of this idea that, that, we were the good guys. We were blessed by God. We were, I know you had a great podcast uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago about manifest destiny and that whole, that whole idea. I think that it sort of filters into that um, where you had this sense that, 
that we were the good guys by gosh. And, and we, it was our responsibility to stand up for, for the right. And I think that that sort of filtered into this sort of resurgence in a desire to worship God and a sense that God was on our side yeah. in this particular fight. Well, that's right. And, you know, the, the positioning of oneself as an innocent who is suffering the per the persecution complex that is now so prevalent today, you know all these poor people who are suffering, quote unquote, but really not. Um, you know there really was legitimate suffering at that time, and once Germany was defeated and, and the the financial global depression was passing, the great enemy of of Europe changed, and all of a sudden it was Russia that rose on the horizon. Mm -hmm very bitter maybe rightfully so about losing 30 million people and by the way when when germany finally officially surrendered over a million german troops raced west praying <laughs> that they would be cap praying they'd be captured by the allies and the american side and not the russian side because they knew there was no going there would be no quarter there for the russian troops that that got them um, and, and, you know, even the end of the war in Japan with the use of the bomb was, was posturing in, in a great effect to, to intimidate Russia. So what you have is this nation of Russia that is secular atheist. And how do we beat them? By being morally superior, by showing our colors, showing <clears throat> our faith. And, the, you know, the front porch was still a thing and flags were flying. And you went to church on Sunday where people questioned you so much so that the fear really warped in in really five, seven years to um, you were questioned if you weren't playing the role of a good Christian, you know, quote yeah. unquote American. It was just what you did. You know, I think we had probably I would guess, you know, they talk all the time about this this country becoming more and more secular. I wonder if that's if that's as true as you would think it would be, you, I, I kind of sometimes wonder whether it's just more socially acceptable to not go to church, to not say that you believe in something. It's or, just, or what if we're just reverting back to maybe the way life was in the twenties? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's so different than perhaps September 12th, 2001, all of a sudden the bumper stickers and the flags and everything, right. That was a really intense time. You had, I mean, the ACLU wasn't even combating prayer in schools for that month because it was just what we do. It was a it's a it's a powerful response to a moment of national trauma. And then by November, December, you know, into 2002. So maybe this is like a longer run of that kind of reality mm -hmm. um, that we see this. So, Jer. Well, yeah, I, what I think is interesting about um, everything you guys are saying is how it how it is all laid the found work for and informed the world that we live in today. Uh, I, I think that so often we imagine that the world is the way it is and could be no other way. And that the way, the way religion looks, couldn't look any other way, right. almost like it appeared magically whole cloth. And it's always been this way and it will always be this way. When in fact, uh, you know, if you rewind the clock a hundred years, the way people were faithful looked very different. And a yep. hundred years from now, it's going to look really different. And we're going to be a footnote in a history book. Someone talking about like all of these conflicts and controversies that we're having today that feel like life or death. Well, people in the people in 1900 had completely different controversies mm -hmm. uh, and, and they felt just as life or death. And they just, you know, and then if you w go back a hundred years and go back a hundred years and go back on like to me, I guess what it does is it, it humbles me 
you know, the next time I think about writing a snarky comment on the internet, I remember actually like there's probably not as much at stake in this as it feels like there is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I totally like, like, agree. To, to steal from you, Paul, I imagine myself to be a paladin, like championing, championing the holy war, right? And maybe I'm not. Like maybe, maybe the work that we do today is important, but it's always contextual. It's always about how do I be faithful right here and right now, not how am I making sure that I defend Christendom for all time against all possible, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah, that, no, that's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that history does is it gives you a, a really strange and sometimes disappointing perspective on, <laughs> on the world. It really does because, I mean, if, if World War II was a movie, it would end. You know, it was just – it ended in happy days. The good guys won. The bad guys lost. Everybody's happy. People are kissing in the streets. Yeah. It's all good news. But time just goes on and the seeds that you sow in World War II, even though even though it was, I, I would consider it a just war, the seeds that you sow go on and, and, and there's some unintended consequences. And, and those consequences, the next big deal has its own set of unintended consequences and everything mm-hmm. feeds into each other. And we just don't know. Yeah how it's going to affect, we don't know what we're doing right now is going to affect the world in, in 20, 30, 40 years. You know, I read a book last year um, by Princeton professor Kevin Cruz called One Nation Under God. And as somebody who once upon a time did a thesis on how America was a Christian nation, um, it was really enlightening to see the origins of our modern idea of America as a Christian nation as they were really created in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. How uh, the New Deal was seen uh, as socialism and how that was something bad for business and business leaders were trying to gain traction against it. And they finally found their traction in the uh, biggest megaphones of the time, which was church pastors and how they turned to ministers throughout the 30s, 40s and 50s. There's a great interview on NPR where Cruz gives a little summation of the book if you just want to kind of dip your toes in for 30 minutes. Um, but, you know, that leads to capitalism becoming aligned with our moral superiority. So Christianity and capitalism um, really become the the left and right fist of this great struggle, you know, of we the paladins. And JR, you were just kind of listening to that with me. Uh, what, what do you think that particular aspect of this creation, this almost branding, really going back and retroactively changing America's true history uh, what do you think that does and says to, to today over the last two well, decades? Again, like there are so many people who think that to be faithful to God means like a blind embrace of a certain kind of pretty reactionary retelling of American history where where we're not allowed to say things like Andrew Jackson was a pretty terrible person because, because he was a president and everything he did must've been good. Um, Or we're not allowed to question that maybe manifest destiny wasn't like the best thing, you know, to the point that we have Christian school textbooks saying no, like for real though, manifest destiny, like God gave us this country. And we're like, because we can't be critical. And, and that again, we, when we imagine that that just is always how it's been, it makes it harder to critique. But when you understand that there was a, a systematic agenda put into place by very intelligent people for a for a goal that had nothing to do with God yeah. or with Jesus or with faith, that it was in fact using religion to accomplish its own ends, you can say, 
okay, well, wait a second. Then, then maybe what it means to be faithful is to step back and ask better questions. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting to see how, like when you're talking about the fifties, how it all sort of dovetailed in with, with the fight against communism. I think, I think for that period of time, you just looked over at Russia, you looked and you just felt these guys, you know, they're, we, we kind of viewed them as, as the new Nazis, you know, the communists were just horrible. You could never, it was like the worst insult. Even when I was going to school in the eighties, it was the worst insult in the world to, to call one of your classmates a communist. And, call and me. Think, exactly. Exactly. So you had a, you had this sense again of sort of this, this moral superiority. And I think that, that what did we look at um, when we're, when we're looking at communism, we wanted to run exactly the other way. And of course that's, that's pure capitalism. And it, it, it's really, it is very, very interesting to me how, how capitalism and Christianity became so firmly linked, you know, within, in the 1950s and onward. Um, and because in some ways, when you look at the capitalist system, I, I, capitalism works. Capitalism um, is, is a good system because it works, but I think it works because it taps into the worst inclinations of us in some ways, rather than the best ones. It taps into our selfishness. It taps into, into our desire to, to, to earn more and to gather more and to, and to do all that sort of stuff. And, 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 but it doesn't really have much to do as far as I can tell with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get, you know, you get this modern popularity of someone like Teddy Roosevelt, who was the Republican trust buster. So he, he respected Hamilton and he loved capitalism, but he said, let's curb the abuses of capitalism. Right. And, you know, we're trying to find that balance, but yeah, you got these preachers as Kevin Cruz says in the book that were basically challenged to write. They had sermon writing contests who could write the best sermon about America as a Christian nation. And wasn't it just so easy to make the one-to-one connection that if you are faithful, you will be blessed. If, if you are financially successful, God is shining upon you. And by the 1950s, you know, Billy Graham is like an untouchable, right? But you look at the stuff he was doing in the 1950s and he was running around uh, basically christening every new business venture for the big business leaders at the time. And I'm not here to say that Billy Graham is some kind of like horrible capitalist person, but clearly the connection was there. Yeah. And the association of God's favor and financial blessing, all in the name, especially of going against the evil atheist communist regime, was powerful. Which, again, today, when you have preachers who say, do God's will and you'll be blessed, most evangelicals roundly condemn that as prosperity gospel. Right. Right. But we don't again, we just don't because we because we're unaware of our own theological and historical DNA. And so I would if if this is something that is challenging to you and if you're kind of like if the hackles on the back, mm-hmm. are your hackles on the back of your neck? Wherever your hackles are, if they're raised, you know, and if you're like, I don't know about these guys, I would really recommend the book that Clay mentioned, One Nation Under God by Kevin Cruz. Uh, in the interview, you can even listen to the interview first. It's a shorter time investment. But uh, Cruz talks about how he did not set out to write this book. Yeah. He had a completely different research idea in mind. And this, through his research for this other idea, sort of kept coming, he kept like smashing into this idea. Well, he over wanted to over. talk about the rise of evangelicalism as a grassroots yeah. thing in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And it, he just, he had no idea how much it was driven, not from grassroots in the way that he thought and not in the era that he thought. Yeah. And yeah. so, and so this, this book is so well researched mm-hmm. and well documented. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't read like a 
a think piece or an attack piece. No, it's like a history piece. It's like, look, go, go look at all these documents for yourself. Go here, look at these private correspondence between these businessmen where they lay out this strategy. Right. Yeah. Well, and you, and you think about sort of the, the modern evangelical culture and you think about the, the leaders who sort of gave us this movement, um, you know, Pat Robertson, uh, Chuck Colson, um, you know, as you say, Billy Graham, they were all they were all I think they were all kids sort of during this really formative time, sure. 40s and 50s, where, where communism was such a huge deal. And you had this sense that that America needed to stand for something better than that. It needed to be strong. It needed to combat these evils in the world. And I think that I think that that naturally is going to impact how you as you become a leader yourself, how you lead. Yeah. You know, uh, one other one other really interesting way that that world the the legacy of World War Two has impacted uh, the church today, especially evangelicalism, is when it comes to gender roles. Uh, You know, feminism basically happened uh, in in many ways because, uh, you know, in World War Two, you had Rosie the Riveter, who basically was asking women to leave the home and go into the workforce to support the war effort. So war define effort. Rosie the Riveter for anybody. Yeah, uh, well, you've seen her picture before. She's the woman wearing the red bandana, and she's got her arm up like she's flexing, and it says, uh, you, we can do it, or can we do it? Yes, we can. There's several different slogans that put, put on there. So but ladies was, who fill in the yeah, factory she, jobs. Yeah, she was a propaganda piece who said, women, go to work. Go work outside the home. And... Uh, and and go into our and it's the first time really since the industrial revolution since we actually separated work into a workplace and a home place it's the first time women had been encouraged in mass to work outside the home right there there was a time in the not terribly distant past where there was no such thing as working outside the home because all your work whether you're a man or a woman you just all kind of worked at home and you know you were either making stuff in the trade, fields right, whatever the butter yeah yeah every there was no such thing as division of labor it was just like everything had to get done and so everyone mm-hmm. just did stuff but then you know with industrial revolution that was where you first for the first time got the men went to work and the women stayed home yep. and then with world war 2 you got well now the men went to war and so the women had to go to work well, then the war ended and all of the men came back from the war and they didn't have jobs because all of the women had jobs and they found out they actually liked being outside the home. And <laughs> a lot of them didn't want to go back to being but a housewife. All the women were, and a lot of minorities too, a lot of African-Americans were expected to now leave Just, that post yep. and give it back to the guy whose job it was. Yeah. And, and so mostly that happened mm-hmm. because it was still very, you know, male dominant society, but the, the, uh, the fractures that that created in our gender dynamics in our country really paved the way for the the, the feminist revolution, which was only you know uh, less than less than two decades later. You know, in the in the sixties. Before you go into a little bit of the specific things, I know I'm, I'm anxious to hear from you about. I'm curious, Paul. Uh, again, from your own research and reading, or maybe again, family members, like what? <laughs> I grew up conservative Christian, right. so right. I didn't I didn't hear about the real. Impact no. this had on women in the 1950s. What what is your knowledge on this? Or what's no, your- and I I think I grew up in a in a home very much like yours. I think that that the sort of environment that I grew up with was still very traditional. You know, my uh, my grandma when my my grandpa was off doing his World War II thing, she was just at home taking care of everything. She was uh, she was taking care of two young kids, um, and she always sort of thrived in that environment. I don't think there, there was any sense really in my upbringing that um, there was any sort of 
wistful longing to get out into the workforce. Sure. She loved being a mom. She loved being a grandmom. And, and I think that, that, that sort of went down to, to my own mom. She, she was a stay at home mom. She raised us. And, and so from that perspective, when we look when I looked as a kid, that was still pretty much the norm, even mm-hmm. as society was sort of changing around us. Mm-hmm. Now, the the environment that, that I live in now, my wife, she would go crazy if she stayed at home. She would go absolutely bonkers. I'm much more likely to stay home than her mm-hmm. and just play video games all day if I could. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that it is interesting because even as that that sense of feminism was sort of rolling along, there was still a lot of resistance in, in, in some cases, maybe even just sort of this sense of, of maybe this is a fad. This is something that's going to go away. And, and sort of these, these traditional um, gender, gender roles that, as you say, JR, weren't necessarily all that traditional are going to come back because that's the way things are. Especially in this new, we've got to look the part as we take on communism. Right, right, so- right. So, Jr., this was kind of a uh-oh moment for a lot of leaders in the church. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, again, it's 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 important to note that before, like going all the way back to before World War One, there were there was a strong tradition of female preachers and female church leaders. Uh, again, in my denomination, Church of the Nazarene, we were incorporated in 1908 as an official denomination, and we were ordaining and placing women as lead pastors, senior pastors, from the beginning of our denomination. And John Wesley had no right. problem That's with lady. Yeah, John, so, John Wesley had no problem with lady preachers in the 1770s. Right, right. That's totally fascinating to me. I had never heard that before. Yeah, huh. yep. Mildred Wincoop, Phoebe Palmer. We have tons of them in our in our tradition, and, and we weren't the only ones. The Methodists yeah. were doing this. As you said from Wesley, they was it was a thing. It wasn't a universal thing, but it was a thing. There were such a thing as female church leaders in the highest levels. Like of- people could actually look it up in books. Yep. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a fact and stuff. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is that again, the church was a victim of the same cultural pressures that the rest of our country was. And so you saw a strong emphasis in the church that, that, leadership roles, authority roles should be only for men because women belonged in positions that that didn't give them access to the same kinds of power. So again, that was like at homes. And think if you grew up in a relatively conservative church, particularly one that doesn't have women in pastoral roles, think about where women served in the church. It was probably either in the kids ministry or in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, kids and cooking, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. like the cultural place. That's what June Cleaver did. That's what, right? That's, That's just kind of that role. What's really fascinating though, is you can actually see how this even affected our Bible translations. Uh, if you turn over to First Timothy, First Timothy chapter two, which is the famous "I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority," right? Uh, you can look at look it up in about any translation you want that has come out post World War II, and it will say, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority." Now, the Greek word for to have authority is the Greek word authentine, and it actually means to murder. And I do uh, not. Permit a woman to murder? Well, it's it's a word that it's classical Greek, and the Bible's written in Koine Greek, so it would be sort of the equivalent of like uh, like the King's English and then modern day English, like they're the same language, but Koine is like common. Okay. And so there are words that much like in much yeah. like in our English, they've changed, right? It's a little Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> so so by the time the New Testament is written, the word authentine has become more metaphorical. In, in, in meaning. And so it, it more, uh, it more really the best translation of it in first Timothy two is to seize authority. 
So Paul is saying, uh, I do not permit, not Paul AC, but Paul, the guy that wrote Saint, right? Saint yeah. Paul. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I might say that too. You never know. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Uh, he says it all the time. Uh, he says, <laughs> he's saying, I do not permit women to teach or to seize authority, violently seize authority. And so the, uh, like uh, a, a near analogy, you might think of like a hostile takeover, right? Where a corporation seizes another corporation and comes in and kicks out all their investors. And Well, was it okay for men to have a seize authority? Uh, no. And that's, I mean, so there's a whole bunch of translations issues with first Timothy chapter two, okay. but here's, what's interesting, right? What you have here is clearly some kind of context going on in this, in this first Timothy, where apparently women in the church are seizing authority, right? There's some, there's some power struggle going on and some, whoever these women are, are taking this authority. You can tell that by that Greek word, like Alventine. Um, the King James for once in its life, <laughs> Like, actually is the best translation of this. If you look up King James 1611 authorized version, it says, I do not permit women to teach or to usurp authority. Okay. So it preserves the sense of that, okay. that there's, again, there's something's going on where there's power that's being taken without authorization. And that's the issue in this text. And there is not a Bible translation that was published after World War II that preserves that. It softens it down to, I do not permit a woman to have authority. And this is the main verse that is used often to... It's one, I mean, it's one of the probably okay. top three that gets trotted out all the time to, to bar women from teaching and preaching or from being senior pastors. Now, what it sounds like is that you're saying there's a conspiracy here, but I don't think you have to go that far, right? You don't have to go. We, that far. No. we just, we just like to, especially if there's multiple options on the table, we just pick the one that kind of aligns. Feels the best, the right? Feels the yeah. Best, the feels aligns. the best. So you're not saying this is some kind of deep conspiracy by right, some I'm not saying there's like a men in a room. Right. No, again, what it is is that we have we have like you were just saying with Billy Graham, right? We don't have to say he's like a demon working for the capitalist Satan to say that he was formed in his time mm -hmm. and we should expect that he would preach and teach like a man of his time would teach mm -hmm. and preach. And that in no way invalidates the amazing work yeah. that Billy Graham right, did right. for the kingdom Absolutely. of God. But we can still say, well, yeah, he wasn't Jesus, right? He was right. bound by his culture and by his time. And that's the same thing we say about these interpreters. We we can say, well, you know, look, uh, we know what the cultural forces looked like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s surrounding gender, even still going on today. And so it's we shouldn't be surprised that when we take a good, hard look at gender issues in the scriptures and we look at when these translations were were put out that that yeah it even works its way into the the what we are reading in the english text of our bibles yeah yeah you know in these these conversations they're always so fascinating to me i love conversations like this but it always makes me wonder as we look forward 30 40 years what are we going to be wrong about today yeah. What are our kids and grandkids going to, if they listen to this podcast, where are they going to go? Oh my <laughs> goodness. These guys were totally off base on this particular mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. You know, and, and you know Paul no is a knowing. great guy, but he was a guy of his time. And, he was you know, a guy of his time. Yeah. Doesn't invalidate all the good work he did for the kingdom. But, <laughs> but man, in this regard, he was yeah. a jerk. Well, and again, that's where I think it has, we has to come back to humility, right? We have to, we have to, we have to take ourselves with a grain of salt. Right. And say we're we want to do the very best job that we can in our faith. We want to run the race well. We want to give everything we have to God. But we have to understand that we are inescapably products of our time and place. And so we should always, always, always have humility 
particularly, I think, in issues that are divisive, like abortion or gay marriage or the bathrooms for transgender folk, like all those things that people are getting so been out of shape about today. Like, and we have our right answers and and I know I'm right because of course I'm right. Have you met me? And like, blah, blah, blah. But like, we should always have, we should always have a strong dose of humility and say, you know, whichever side I'm on, the people who owned slaves and used the Bible to say that it was okay, they weren't evil men sitting in a room, like, right. you know, steepling right. their fingers and laughing. They were probably yes. good, honest Christian people who were trying their best. And this was the best they could do. And they were wrong about that. That's so, absolutely right. That's, that's absolutely right. And I think, I think one of the things that we have to remember as Christians, you know, I think we're, we're called to speak out about these issues that are really important to us. We're, we're called to, you know, converse and struggle and sometimes even argue. But I think what you say is absolutely right. It has to be done with that spirit of humility. It has to be done with a certain sense of grace. To to because that's the only way that the conversation can can sort of be fruitful. You know, if 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 you're angry and hostile, there's there's no way that people are going to listen to you as you talk about these issues that are really important. Great final words. There's a lot we can learn from history. If you want to read the book by Kevin Cruz, it's called One Nation Under God. If you'd like to learn more about the Cold War, you could check out a historian named John Lewis Gaddis or watch just all of the amazing documentary work that is out there. Um, so we remember the end of World War II at this time, and uh, certainly a lot of sacrifices made by a lot well, of people God, who aren't with us anymore, but the lessons of history are strong. With that said, we have a little bit of final business to take care of, and I think, JR, it's time. For the pop culture pick of the week? Pow! Pow! Yes. 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 And we're going to do a very special World War II papal. I know I sprung that on you guys a bit. So I will go first. And this could be any uh, work of pop culture relevance that is relating to World War II. Um, I am going to go with my hands down favorite filmed movie. It's a long form movie about World War II. And that is the original Band of Brothers, which um, was first a book, which turned into a 10-part miniseries on HBO. Now it's like over 10 years old. It is just an amazing work, in my opinion. When I watched Band of Brothers, I couldn't stop. And, um, Jr., you still need to watch it. I know. It is powerful and incredible. It's got Ron Livingston. It's got so many people you'll recognize, produced by, I think, Spielberg and Hanks. Um. Gosh, just the fact that it's that it's true history, um, and you read about Dick Winters, who's kind of the leader of this hundred and first Airborne Division. He was a Pennsylvanian. He was a he was a Christian who kind of defied all the stereotypes of of soldiers at the time, and he just rose the ranks and lived an incredible life. So I'm going to say Band of Brothers, and then I'm going to throw it over to our guest, Paul. What is your pop culture pick of the week? I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one, but I'll try. I'll try. Can I do a movie and a book? Yes. All right. I think my book would be, and I think you guys talked about this not too long ago, Slaughterhouse Five. 
Okay. Um, Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut. I think it is a brilliant book. I just just mentioning it makes me want to read it over again. I think that Vonnegut is one of the one of the greatest people for a turn of phrase, and it, there are just so many memorable moments in that book that just make the whole thing sing. And as far as a movie, I gotta say Schindler's List. Mm. I think that it may be honestly the best movie I've ever seen. Uh, for me, it resonated that deeply. Uh, wow. I, it, yeah, I just found it super, super powerful. And I think maybe it was because I watched it at a time when I was just starting to to sort of grow out of the just watch movies fun, have a little popcorn, and really think about movies deeply. I sort of watched it at that cusp. Yeah. And the whole thing was so powerful. The fact that it was done in this this really rich black and white, the fact that it had so many, you know, echoes of the Bible in it, it just really moved me. It was a, it, it's a, it was an incredible experience. Not a movie, actually, that I've ever watched again since the first time I watched it. It's just a Same hard here. movie to watch. Yeah. But it's it's really powerful and really good. Interesting. Uh, mine, I'm going to take a little bit of a uh, shift and say mine is the uh what is the series the whole series called i think it's called the great war saga by harry turtle dove it's oh, actually okay. an 11 book series that begins it begins 20 years after the south wins the civil war <laughs> interesting and so the first book is like a standalone then there's a three book world war 1 series where it's germany uh austria hungary the Ottoman empire and the United States versus England, France, Russia, and the Confederate States. Then wow. there's, then there's a three book series set between the wars with like the great depression and all of that. And then there's a four book series that is world war two in that universe. Mm. So JR, you, every time I listen, you're reading some massive series. It seems like, how are you able to do this? Do you actually read when you're sleeping? Do you put the book under your pillow and does it just sort of absorb into your mind? No. So I actually started reading that series in college and the last book came out probably like a decade ago. So I've, I've read that whole series as it sort of, as it came out. It is annoying, Paul. I keep waiting for these gaping <laughs> holes of knowledge about these things that he says he's read. And yeah. I don't know. I, I think he has like some kind of secret Cliff's Notes file that just. Well, have you thought maybe he's just lying? I mean, maybe he's just <laughs> yeah, coming daily. up with these things. He, he looks at Google and he says, "Oh, this seems like a good thing to mention. I'll I'll do this for my papal." I actually have a, a team of interns that reads books for me and submits one page <laughs> summaries. <laughs> well, we would love to hear uh, for you listeners. What is uh, your World War Two? Papau. You know, it could be the upcoming Civil War, I guess, if you want to make the Captain America connection. Uh, maybe a classic like Casablanca, one of the other many, many movies, or a great work uh, like Night by Elie Wiesel. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Where can people find you these days on the interwebs? Oh, you know, my day job is over at an organization called Plugged In, PluggedIn.com. I do movie reviews there. I do a lot of uh, blogging over at Pathios.org. Um, and that's Pathios.org slash Watching God is my blog. So but you can probably do just a search and find me that way. And I'm, I'm sort of scattered around the, the web here and there. So, you know, if, if you just sort of 
go into the deepest recesses, the places where no one else goes, then you'll probably see my name being <laughs> written a story that no one's read. So, <laughs> but you're definitely going to blog about Civil War, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, definitely. I figured. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm excited to see it. I think it'll be really interesting. So. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. We will be back next week. We're not quite there to that summer break. We've got to definitely talk about Civil War. Um, but this has been episode 127, How World War II Helped Shape American Religion and Christianity. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. This is a song about the three-story men Life is a story we're all living in So now that you know the story you're in Just sit back and listen to the three-story Sometimes there's a man Rather, sometimes there's some men And I'm talking about the story men here And I know what you're thinking Those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined But we're missing the point Sometimes there's some men And you want to know what these hombres are about? Well, I won't say they're heroes They're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, I lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.